electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Well, I got to disagree with Scott because I think natural gas is a perfectly appropriate topic after the Thanksgiving dinner, Dom, don't you? All right, welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Here's what's ahead. Happy anniversary, by the way. Stock's up today. We are one year for the NASDAQ's all-time high. The question is, what comes next? Well, up next, maybe a diesel disaster, a shortage of arguably the world's most critical fuel. is sending tanks nearly empty and prices higher. We're going to hear from some saying it could be a $100 billion hit to the American economy. And as the crypto universe seemingly crumbles around it, will Coinbase survive and maybe even thrive? We're going to have a bull bear debate on one of the hottest debated stocks out there. That, of course, is Coinbase. But let us begin with Dom Chu, who's been grinning all day because your Jimmy G finally showed up for your 49ers last night. Congratulations. To the tune of four touchdown passes. Pretty good. (laughs) There you go. So, yes, I am happy because the Niners had a nice blowout win against the Cardinals yesterday. But I'm also happy for a lot of other folks out there whose 401ks are catching at least a little bit of a bid today. We are seeing some fractional gains in the market and kind of tilting towards the higher levels of the session so far today. The Dow Industrials, 33,972. It's up 275 points. Three quarters of 1% gain there. Similar percentage gains for the NASDAQ, or rather the S&P 500, 39.80. So still trying to get back towards that 4,000 level, up 30 handles right now. And then the NASDAQ composite up 60 points, 11,085. The laggard, if you want to call it that, only up about one half of 1%. But again, fractional gains. One other place, though, to keep an eye on is whether or not there is sentiment in technology that could foretell us, at least a little bit, about a nice move higher. So far, there are three parts of the overall tech industry, the tech sector, that are still not showing some real signs of life. Sentiment-wise, we're still seeing some negativity floating around the year's lows for cloud computing stocks. This particular ETF that tracks it is down 41% on the year. The fintech ETF is now down about 50-51% on the year. And the Dow Jones Internet ETF, big internet commerce communications type names, down about 45% on the year. But I put up the chart on a year-to-day basis to show you the medium to longer-term downtrend that we've seen, and we're still kind of hovering near those lows of the year for cloud computing, fintech, and internet-related stocks. So maybe not just yet the all-clear for a bounce off the lows. We'll see what that sentiment gauge says in the coming days and weeks. And then if you're looking for that retail story today, the best-performing stock in the S&P 500 is Best Buy, up about 12% right now. And Dick's Sporting Goods also up decently here, though not a part of that big S&P 500 trade, up 8%. Both these retailers came out with better-than-expected results. Profits and revenues also raised their guidance. In Best Buy's case, they affirmed their fourth-quarter holiday season guidance. That's the reason for the bullishness. Dollar Tree, on the discount side of things, also beat. And comparable store sales were better. But they also guided to the lower end of their previously stated range. So even though it was an outlook and even though it was a better than expected report, that share, those shares are down about 9% right now. So it kind of tells you that really mixed picture that we're seeing in retail right now, Brian. It's played out throughout the latter half of this earnings season. 
No exception today, but still Best Buy, Dick's, some of those big green spots you can see in that retail trade today. I'll send things back over to you. All right, we'll let you go so you can go get in line for that 95-inch flat panel you've been keeping your eye on, Dom. Thank you very much. All right, well, despite today's gains, your next guest says the economic picture will stay rather murky until global inflation settles down. And in his opinion, that is still years away. But that also doesn't mean that market opportunities do not exist. Let's welcome back in Andreas Garcia Amaya. He is the CEO and founder of Zoe Financial. Andreas, good to have you back on again. Um, inflation here is starting to come down. We know that around the world, yeah, particularly Europe, it seems to be actually accelerating. What's your global macro view right now? Yeah, no, I think uh, if you look at it from where we stand now, I think the stock market is trading on hope. Right, hope that the Federal Reserve uh, will, at some point in the near future, say, call it quits and say, you know what, we hiked enough, inflation's coming down. But the reality of it is that once you get uh, inflation above six percent, and this actually was uh, done by uh, work by research affiliates, uh, it takes about seven and a half years to get back to three percent. And they looked at over. 12 countries over 50 years. Now, I'm not saying it's going to take seven and a half years, right? The, uh, the Fed is hiking interest rates at a very rapid pace, so it might take shorter than that. But this idea of like, hey, you know what? At some point early next year, we're, we're out of the woods. I think that's a little optimistic. Yeah, and we look at this has been a bizarre year. It's been a bizarre year for a lot of reasons. But from a financial perspective, it's one of the few years we've ever had where stocks and government bonds have both gone down. Normally, stocks go down, people buy government bonds. Government bonds go down, people buy stocks. Not this year. The diversified portfolio we hear about in every commercial has not worked. Will it go back to working? Well, if you look at the usual environment in which that 60 and 40 worked, which was a um, low volatility inflation world, low volatility GDP world, and a world where the Fed could always lower interest rates to make it all you know, be okay, is not here anymore. So from that perspective, I think you do need to diversify more than you used to into commodities, right, into tips. And you basically need to have inflation-sensitive asset classes because, to your point, you know, bonds didn't act as a defender, as a shield this year. Yeah, they haven't. And, and stocks haven't either, although we've had a nice little run lately. To what do you ascribe this recent little run that we've had? Is it seasonality? Is it that, that hope strategy? And we know that hope is not a strategy with the weather or with stocks. The hope of this, this fantastical Fed pivot. Yeah, look, I think positioning has something to do with it, right? You saw that huge pop after the inflation number came in better than expected for, for October. So I think a lot of people were pricing, uh, in essence, things to get worse. And therefore, there was kind of a positioning adjustment. But once you look far out, you know, six months out, a year out, that positioning is not as important as the fundamentals. And from a fundamental standpoint, I don't see a world in the next year or two where inflation or GDP is going to go back to the world where there was a lot more certainty around those numbers. Well, listen, uh, we look at the world and, and I, you know, I don't want to be like some sort of have an eagle on my shoulder eating a hot dog watching baseball. <laughs> By the way, go USA and World Cup. Disappointing tie versus Wales yesterday. That said, um, America looks pretty good respective to the world in terms of inflation? Does it not, particularly Europe? 
Yeah, they've got gas yeah. and storage, but they paid nine times this year what they paid last year. That's going to trickle through. Do we want to stay focused on the, the good old U.S. of A.? I think it's a great question, right? I think in the short term, the safety of the U.S., which is a it's a trade that has worked now for years versus the rest of, of the world, uh, does seem kind of cozy, right? Uh, but if you look three, four, five years out, and going back to kind of what I mentioned earlier around kind of investment trading on hope, the difference here versus stocks abroad is valuation, right? There's a huge spread in valuation, even more than usual, versus European stocks, as well as emerging market stocks. And you throw in the fact that the dollar has been on a tear for more than seven, eight years. It does paint a picture where you actually might get more value there than here. Obviously, it doesn't mean just own international stocks, but most Americans don't own any, right? So having some exposure could actually help your overall portfolio. Andres Garcia Amaya, appreciate you coming on. Global Macro View. Have a great Thanksgiving, Andres. Thank you. Thank you. All right. By the way, we don't talk all about seven-year notes very much, but hey, let's do it. Rick Santelli is at the uh, CME. I'm not even sure, Rick, that I was aware there were seven-year notes. Well, you know what? Neither were investors, and it doesn't really matter the maturity because the dynamic is the same. Whether we're looking at a two-year, five-year, seven-year, 10-year, 20-year, 30-year, the auctions aren't going well. And this is a case study in how well they are not going. 35 billion seven-year notes, uh, Sully. Uh, So we had twos, we had fives, now we had sevens. Total package, 120 billion. They moved it along because of the holidays. The grade dog minus, D minus. The when issued market was trading right around 3.86%. The auction ultimately went off at 3.89%. Those three basis points are not good. Okay, uh, they, they call that tailing. And just one basis point tail isn't good. When you get three, that is very much not good. None of the metrics were very stellar. The one that really shot out was 21.7% for dealers. Uh, 12% is the 10 auction average takedown. The more dealers take, the less investors take. And I think if you look at these charts... Pretty much many are now in my camp that the high yield closes for the longer maturities, sevens on, are probably already locked in concrete. Back to you. All right, Rick. Unfortunately, I think your feed was about to win about as well as that auction, apparently. Rick, we'll get you back on soon. Thank you very much. All right, now to the saga that has taken the crypto world by storm. The FTX bankruptcy hearing kicking off today. And it is fair to say it is getting weirder. It is getting darker and it is getting more complex by the day. Eamon Javers is at the Proceedings in Wilmington, Delaware, joining us now with some headlines. Uh, Eamon, I don't even know where to start, so just take it away and we'll go from there. Well, Brian, I just talked to John Ray, who is the FTX new CEO, stepping in for Sam Brankman-Fried, who, of course, has left the company now. Ray said he's not going to be able to have any comments during the course of this proceeding. But his attorney uh, did uh, appear before this court today uh, saying a number of uh, things about the company, including he called this probably one of the most abrupt and difficult collapses in the history of corporate America. He said the emperor had no close in terms of the management of FTX. We learned a couple of new things here today so far. Uh, one is that the company is grappling with cybersecurity uh, concerns here. Cyber attacks against the company, they said, are ongoing. They said substantial assets from the company are now missing, and they don't know where those assets are. Uh, the account holder attorneys here uh, stepped up to argue against 
publishing the names of the individual customers of FTX. We had a, a dispute here between uh, the U.S. trustee and the company. The company does not want those names made public. The company argues, in fact, that those names represent an uh, asset of value to the, to the company itself that could be sold later for a lot of money, and there are privacy concerns here. Uh, the U.S. trustee stepped up and argued, well, wait a second, we have transparency in bankruptcy uh, proceedings in the United States. We want those names to be public at least as much as we can. Uh, at this point, the judge has stepped in and ruled in favor of the company here. So the names of the FTX customers will not be made public anytime soon. He said that's on an interim basis. They may revisit that decision, Brian. So a dispute here over exactly how much information the public is going to get out of this bankruptcy proceeding, uh, so far the answer is uh, not much in terms of those names, Brian. Back over to you. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that I've seen a bankruptcy hearing where they've redacted the names of the creditors like this one before. I thought it might have something to do with law in the Bahamas. Apparently it's not. In those headlines, though, also, Eamon, in the filing, FTX's attorney also said that revealing those names could destabilize, their word, not mine, the crypto market. So in a way, they're yeah. kind of arguing that this is also potentially, at least for crypto, a systemic event. Yeah, well, one of the things that they're arguing here is that people invest in crypto in the first place uh, for privacy reasons, and it's unfair to those customers to then go ahead and name them in, in the proceedings here in court in Delaware. Uh, the U.S. trustee didn't buy that argument at all. He said, we want as much information basically as we can get on who these people are, and that should be out, at least in terms of the institutional holders here, uh, if not the individual addresses of individual customers for cyber uh, privacy reasons. Uh, the other concern here, Brian, is an interesting one because you've got European digital privacy law, which really blocks the release of a lot of that information, uh, and U.S. privacy law doesn't. And so one of the things that the FTX attorneys was, were arguing uh, was that it's unfair to the American crypto holders to, to, name, to name them, but not to name the Europeans who are protected by that digital privacy law. They said that creates two tiers of customers in terms of privacy, yeah. and all of those people are at risk for cyber attack uh, if their information is made public. So a a lot of concerns here. The judge said there's a real tug here a back and forth between privacy and transparency. For now, he has sided on the side of privacy. And apparently they've amassed, and I know we got to go very quickly, amassed quite the real estate portfolio, including a $16 million yeah. home purchased for his parents, Root. both of whom, by the way, are law Root. professors. We are learning a lot here about the real estate assets held in the Bahamas by this company. A number of those homes the company has said were purchased uh, for the use of company officials. Uh, the question is, you know, who was using those homes? What were they using them for? And what's going to be the disposition of those assets? So uh, we, at some point, we might see a fire sale of real estate in the Bahamas, Brian. So if you want to get in line for that one, uh, there's a long line of folks here wanting assets from FTX here in Delaware. I have a feeling that, unfortunately, the only winners here are going to be the bankruptcy attorneys themselves. What a web this is. So much more to come. A lot of them here on site. Yep. That's it. Eamon Jabbers in Wilmington, Delaware. Thank you. All right. Speaking of crypto, have you seen a chart of Coinbase's stock lately? Well, the market cap is down $70 billion in a year, but one analyst says it's time to buy the dip, and at least one big investor is. We'll tell you who and debate Coinbase coming up. But first, it is not hyperbole to say that we may be on the verge of a diesel disaster, and it could have huge ripple impacts around the world this winter. We will exchange, explain on the exchange, he said. Next.
This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, this story is not getting a lot of attention elsewhere, but it should, and it's not just a business story. It could impact every aspect of the economy. It's a growing shortage of diesel fuel. Demand up, supply down. So down, in fact, at the cost to eat homes, power trucks, run machinery, everything diesel does is becoming a bigger problem for many Americans and companies. And one of your next guests says the higher prices could lead to a $100 billion hit just to the U.S. economy. Overseas in Europe, things are... Just as bad, if not worse. Dig in deeper to all sides. Mark Finley is an energy fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute of Public Policy. He just ran the numbers, along with somebody who needs no introduction, but I'm legally obliged to give her one anyway. That is CNBC <laughs> contributor Halima Croft, head of global commodities at RBC Capital Markets. We're going to make you laugh in a serious story, Halima. Good to see you again. Mark, uh, you ran the numbers. Tell us what you found, because we implied there was a shortage a couple weeks ago and kind of got a nasty gram for the Department of Energy. There is a real issue here. There is a real issue. Uh, inventories for this time of year are the lowest they've been in in, in memory. Um, and of course, there may not be physical shortages, but that's because the price has gone up so dramatically. Uh, and so, you know, whether whether you know you you trade off physical availability for a higher price, you know, the impact is still the same. And as you mentioned, it's uh you know looking at U.S. Uh, you know consumers footing a bill for an extra hundred billion dollars this year just for diesel fuel. That's it, Halima. And, and we're competing in, in New England. I don't know if you're up there in Rhode Island or you travel every, every day, so who knows where you are. If you have heating oil, I'm sorry. <laughs> What's going on? I mean, this is a huge challenge, particularly for the East Coast of the United States. I mean, it's where all the products are in really short supply. And this is going to be a big challenge when we go to the European sanctions. In February, Europe is going to basically go to zero in terms of imports of Russian products. So you now have Europe essentially bidding against the U.S. East Coast for refined products. And if we have a very cold winter, this competition could send prices much higher. And so this will be a really pronounced problem come winter. And again, it's a problem of competition right now between the U.S. East Coast and Europe for the refined products. Back to you, Halima. Before we go back to Mark, do you think we could get a ban temporary or whatever, on refined products like diesel from the United States being bandied about. In other words, you can't ship from Houston to Rotterdam. I mean, right now, the U.S. Energy Secretary is talking about sort of minimum inventory levels for the East Coast. But the question is, do we go further in terms of refined products ban? I mean, you have certain members of Congress calling for this now. 
The real problem would be what this would do to Europe. Again, Europe has taken a very serious stand in terms of willingness to shut down the market for Russian products into that continent. And if we basically ban U.S. exports, that's going to put our key allies in a very, very serious economic crisis. That's it, because they need this sort of gas to oil and diesel switching that we've talked about. You know, and Mark, you know, from an economic perspective, diesel, we don't even think about it unless you're a trucker or a train, whatever. It is so critical. I mean, anecdotally, I just got some tree work done. My tree guy, who's a great guy, tacked on a surcharge for the cost of his diesel for his trucks. He apologized, but I totally understand, especially covering the industry like I do. Talk to us about the ripple impacts, not just if we don't have diesel. We'll, we'll probably have it. But man, the extra cost on everything. That's exactly right. It's literally the extra cost of everything that moves uh, is moved with diesel fuel. Uh, and, and, you know, we're staying at home. So maybe, you know, I mean, gasoline has been a huge issue already. We saw how, how big it was in the midterm elections, um, you know, but, you know, with more people staying home, uh, everyone is ordering, and so you know the the need for stuff to get moved around, you know, is if anything even greater than it was before. And the, literally, diesel is all in in all of that. And Mark, one more to you: Do, What is the reason for this? Is it only the war in Ukraine? I mean, that's what we hear, but is that the only reason? You know, in normal times, the only thing you need to worry about when you're thinking about what drives changes in prices of diesel fuel and gasoline is what's changing with the price of crude oil. This is not normal times. Um, there are a variety of factors. Uh, as Halima mentioned, and hi, Halima, um, the, uh, you know, Russia is a significant exporter of not only crude oil, but of diesel fuel as well. Earlier this year, China put export restrictions on its refineries. But also we've seen, you know, in addition to the strong demand that you mentioned earlier, Brian, it's the, um, you know, the a number of refineries have closed uh, in the U.S. and in Europe after the pandemic. So refining has been tight. Uh, and on top of that, you have the Russia and the yeah. China stories uh, ladling in on it. That's it. Halima, you know, listen, we've obviously got the war. No one's minimizing that. It's played a tremendous and terrible impact and probably will even more so next year than this year. But when we're down by 50 percent from our refining capacity in the northeast of New England from right. from 10 years ago, what do we expect is going to happen? No, I mean, one of the things that we should be really concerned about is, you know, there is no SPR for refining capacity. And so what are the tools that policymakers have to alleviate these shortages? And if we go into a really, really cold winter, I mean, that's going to have you know, huge impacts for consumers, particularly sitting in places like I am in Rhode Island. That's it. And apparently you guys used to work together. So it's good to have you good to have you, you back <laughs> yes, on as yes. well. It was a good pairing. Mark yes. and Halima, thank you very much, by the way. Halima, I'll I'll see you in Vienna. Guys, thank you. Have a great Thanksgiving. All right, still ahead. Are you panicking yet? Just 32 days until Christmas, and there is one big question facing everyone. Can the shippers get you your gifts on time? We'll get a live look. Frank Holland is down in Atlanta at a major UPS hub. We'll find out if you're going to get your goods. Stick around. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to the exchange, everybody. A lot of green on the screen right now. Stocks, in fact, they are at session highs across the board. Dow's up 317. That's almost 1%. NASDAQ about the same. It's a little holiday rally we had just continuing on. Feels kind of good, doesn't it? All right, here are some of the movers at this hour. Fly, Eagle, Fly, American Eagle, soaring on the back of its strong numbers. American Eagle up 17%. On the flip side, Medtronic on pace to close at its lowest level since March of 2020. This after revenue missed expectations. The company provided a rather downbeat full-year outlook, citing weakness in procedure volume, just medical procedures. All right, look at Zoom. Zoom also getting hit hard today. It is, well, not as hard as it was, down about 4% right now. Profit did top estimates, but their guidance for revenue in the current quarter fell short of estimates. That stock down 60% this year. I know a lot of people still Zoom, but a lot fewer than, than were. And here's some more beautiful market music. Shares of Warner Music, they are soaring after posting a rise in profit and revenue and growing streamings, music revenue also growing, whatever I just said. Warner Music, WMG is up 14.5% right now. All right, there's some stocks that are on the move for you. Let's get a CNBC News update with Tyler Mathis. All right, Brian, thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour. The first real-world data on updated COVID boosters show they do work better at preventing infections than the original vaccines did. The CDC says the results are based on tests of more than 360,000 adults. The driver of an SUV that crashed into an Apple store near Boston has been charged with reckless homicide. One person died and 17 others were injured. 53-year-old Bradley Ryan has pleaded not guilty, saying his foot got stuck on the accelerator as his vehicle sped into the store. The judge set Ryan's bail at $100,000. And a new poll showing a virtual dead heat in the runoff election. For Georgia's U.S. Senate seat, voters asked by AARP favored Democrat Raphael Warnock over Republican Herschel Walker, 51% to 47%. But that four-point margin is within the polls' margin of error. Now, Warnock leads among voters under 50 and women of all ages. Walker more popular among older Georgians, perhaps, Brian, those who remember him from his football days at Georgia. And beyond. And we, we kind of learned a lot about polls the last couple of elections as well. So we sure have. we'll take it with a grain of salt. All right, Tyler, thank you. All right, on deck. It's a Coinbase clash. Is it safe to play the crypto-based stock right now? We're going to debate Coinbase with those two fine gentlemen coming up next. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Coinbase shares getting whacked lately as the fallout from FTX and others rocks the crypto world. Shares, though, they are higher today. You have Needham and Barclays cutting their price targets, but also remaining generally positive on the stock. Plus, Kathy Wood's ARK Invest has bought more than 8 million shares since the beginning of November. But with Bitcoin touching a two-year low and crypto lender Genesis reportedly reaching out to big investors to raise capital and, of course, everything else going on, the future of everything in crypto seems not super clear right now. But sometimes, maybe it's just darkest right before dawn, right? So let's talk both sides of the coin base. Taking the bullish side is Chris Brendler, senior equity analyst at DA Davidson. He apparently liked that dad joke. He's got a buy rating and a $70 target on the stock. For the bears, it is Dan Dolev, managing director and senior analyst at Mizuho Securities. Got a hold at a $42 price target. Chris, begin with you. It's been tough. I'm sure you're getting blowback on it, but what is the bull case for Coinbase? Hey, thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Um, so 
Uh, there will be winners. This is, uh, I think, you know, darkest before dawn type of stuff makes a lot of sense. It's a very stressful time for the industry. We have probably more shoes to drop, but we believe that Coinbase, given its uh, sort of mission, the way it's, the whole company's been run for the last decade, is going to avert the disasters that are falling any of its competitors and come out a winner over the long run. Crypto is not going away. This is another setback for sure, but uh, we still believe in the long-term value of what uh, blockchain technology can do for uh, financial services. And Dan, you're not a complete Thanks. hater, right? You've got you've got a hold. It's not like it's a supercell rating. So what's your take on Coinbase and its prospects right now? I think the prospects are pretty grim. I mean, all you have to do is read the 10Q. In the third quarter, they made $590 million in revenue and $1.2 billion of expenses with you know, over $2 billion, $3 billion of, of leverage. They're burning cash. I mean, this thing doesn't look good. Investors, retail investors are fleeing crypto. They're not coming back. I don't know what's to like about this one. Well, Chris, how would you respond? Um, profitability is improving. I think the, the gap numbers can be a little bit distorted sometimes. And adjusted EBITDA, they're down to about $150 million loss in the third quarter. It came in actually better than expected. The interest income ramping up has been a nice offset some of the trading volume pressures. I think interest income is sort of an unknown wrinkle when it comes to, to Coinbase's story. They have a significant interest in Circle. So uh, with rates going up, we see a big tailwind from interest income that'll dilute the, the reliance on trading volume. And um, you know, I certainly agree that retail investors will be pulling back, but I, I've been following this space for a long time and, and we thought they'd gone away forever in 18 and they came back bigger than ever last year, probably too big in some ways. So I, I don't think that this is necessarily going away and, and Coinbase is built to survive. You, Dan, do you think it will survive? In five years, will there be a Coinbase as as an independent stock? It, it, there's a percent chance, which is not zero, that that's not going to happen. And, and I want to say something about interest income. If you want interest income, own a bank, not Coinbase. The reason you're getting, they're getting interest income is because they're not paying people's deposits on U.S. Uh, US stablecoin as much as they should be getting. So if you want something with interest income, go own SoFi much better play on interest income. You don't own Coinbase for interest income. That's not the right way to, at least according to my view, that's not, not the right way to think about it. Chris? Uh, I totally disagree. I think it's a nice uh, you know, sort of added revenue stream. People aren't putting their money on Coinbase to earn interest income. Um, I'd rather be exposed to Coinbase here than to be a consumer lender like SoFi, uh, given the coming stress uh, to lenders, given what's going on inflation in the economy. So. Um, you know, everything has uh, its angle. And, you know, Coinbase, obviously, it's not a, a bank. It's going to be the leading trading platform. What's happened in the world in the last couple of weeks is we've learned that uh, putting your crypto in an offshore exchange that's not regulated is a bad idea. So expect Coinbase to gain significant market share as the fallout continues. And Chris, I mean, if you have, do you have any liquidity concerns at all with Coinbase, given what Genesis has said, what we've already seen this year with Voyage? I know they're not the same companies. I get it. But investors sometimes hit sell now and think about it later. Oh, absolutely. And look at the way the bonds have traded. They're trading like there is some material liquidity risk here. And you can't say for sure. I mean, this thing, we don't know how deep this thing goes. And, and a lot of companies in the crypto world tend to be very closely tied together. I think it's a huge uh, tip of the feather in their cap to Coinbase if they've avoided the significant issues so far. But you never can be too sure. Um, so, you know, it's really a, a high risk position with uh, a lot of upside if they get this right is sort of our view here. Yeah, do we need new management there, Dan? Would that matter? I don't think so. I think that you know, I, I don't think the management actually matters. I think the category in which they play, like, well, I, I think actually, 
what we've learned in the last few weeks is that crypto could be worth something and it could be worth zero. And this could happen overnight. And I think the same thing could happen for everything that's traded on Coinbase, including Bitcoin. So I don't think the management matters, although I would say I don't see it in a very positive light that the CEO is selling shares at you know these lows. It doesn't bode very well for sentiment, in my view. All right. Well, listen, it's a, it's a very hotly debated stock, some, some passionate and good arguments on both sides. Dan and Chris, appreciate it both, gentlemen. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. All right, up Thank next, you check out this mystery chart. It is up 22% so far this year. They report their numbers tomorrow. I honestly have no idea who it is. Robots apparently are one of the key factors to watch, I'm told. We'll figure that one out. Reveal the mystery chart coming up. All right. I just learned the mystery chart, and so you're going to learn it like 10 seconds after me. It is Deere, formerly known as John Deere, easily outperforming the industrial sector this year. But there are a few potential headwinds on the horizon. They report their numbers tomorrow. Seema Modi joining us now with some of the key language to watch. What is happening down there in Moline, Illinois. Well, there is no question that John Deere, Brian, is the standout this year. I mean, this chart, as you were just showing, up 20% in 2022 compared to the industrial sector, which is down 5% year to date. A surge in crop prices fueling the rally. And yes, wheat, it's off its multi-year high, hit back in April. But farmers can lock in pricing at any time, which means more money they can use to buy big machinery. Right now, equipment sales anticipated to rise by $13.4 billion in the fourth quarter. J.P. Morgan expected sales to come in right below that at 13.1, so a slight miss, and that is due to the ongoing supply chain constraints as well as higher input costs. That was a clear concern for Deere's competitors, Agco, Oshkosh, both of which reported earlier this month. Softer demand for smaller tractors was also cited after the big run-up we saw during the pandemic. More important than the fourth quarter numbers are going to be the 20. 2023 guidance that we get from John Deere. Do they expect a recession, Brian? Uh, you know, what are they seeing on the economic front for farmers? Are they feeling confident? Farmer sentiment is heavily tied to how much they are willing to spend on tractors and precision technology. I was out there in Davenport and I drove by there and they had like their investor dad. There's some cool stuff they're doing, right? Robots, drones. It's yes. not just the combines that we've got in the uh, giant monitor behind your head. John Deere's aggressive spend on innovation, including robots and AI, what they're trying to do to make farmers feel more efficient when they're out on the farm. It's one of the reasons they outspend all of their peers on uh, R&D, about $2 billion per year. So much more than Agco and CNH. However, going into an economy that could be softening, will John May continue to stick to that aggressive spending plan? He's expected to receive pushback uh, on that very plan on the call tomorrow, which begins at 10. So I can understand the, the, the drones, right? Your farmer used to go in the fields. Now you just kick back, pop open a hams and let the drone film the crops for you. What do the robots do? The robots basically means fully autonomous tractors, right? So the same. So thing you can literally just, just still sit and it does yes, the work for you. They're adding so much technology to these farms across America to ensure each farmer can br bring back more crop per yield. And that's allowing them to be more efficient. It's helping with sales, but it's a big investment. A combine can be a million dollars per device, Brian. So it's very expensive. However, the benefits could uh, outweigh the costs. That's the, the hope, at least. Yeah, and we just did a segment on diesel fuel. And I don't know a lot about farming, but I know those things take a lot of fuel. They do. They Until they're all electric. Do. That's why batteries are definitely one way John Deere is trying to innovate. Um, there's there's ways to get around it. They're hoping. Powered by corn, a.k.a. ethanol. Or Simo hydrogen. Or, yeah. or that's it. Thank you very much. Simo Modi, good stuff. Deere's numbers tomorrow. All right, still ahead. 
We have heard from a lot of stock pickers that America is the place to be right now. But up next, a bond strategist will tell us why he's looking into certain emerging markets. That's your that's your neck of the woods, emerging markets for value. Stick around. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. You might have heard about this, but the Federal Reserve has raised rates by three and a quarter percent so far this year. There's still one decision, maybe two, on the table, and that has helped propel bond yields to multi-decade highs. Two-year yields began the year below one percent. They're now at about four and a half, 70 basis points higher than the 10-year yield. That's your inversion. Your next guest thinks we're going to be stuck in this range for a while and says quality is the name of the game. Joining us now and where he is buying is Brian Weinstein, he is head of fixed income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Brian, thanks for joining us. Uh, Bonds have suddenly become attractive to a lot of people, but does that mean treasuries or does that mean high-grade investment bonds or does that mean yes? To both of them. <laughs> well, I guess a very simple answer is yes. Um, but yes, it's very exciting. Fixed income is attractive. It's in the game. It's an alternative. It's an asset alternative where, where it hasn't been in a while. Um, so I think treasuries are a fine place to start, but there's no reason to stop there. You can get great yields in investment grade, municipal bonds, um, select emerging markets. I mean, you know, credit markets are have cheapened a lot too. But I think treasuries are a great, great place to start down 15 to 20% on the year. One of the biggest moves we've ever seen. Yeah. And are we being compensated enough? In other words, uh, is the yield that I'm going to get from a high grade investment bond called six percent, but I've got I've got more probably move in the Fed funds coming. Am I going to be compensated enough right now to make up for that spread if it moves? Uh I think so, because I, I think if you look at the inversion and, and, and what's coming, we're going to have slower growth. We're going to have slower inflation. It's going to be sticky. So the Fed is going to be forced to keep rates higher than they want for longer, which means a bigger slowdown, lower long-term interest rates. Um, I think you're, you're in the middle of, the, uh, of, a, of a bond rally. So that 6% you're going to get, you can get some duration return, call it another 3 or 4%. And that 6% coupon, I don't think, has a big risk of default. Uh, so yes, I think that 6% plus some duration rally is actually a pretty good return uh, versus other alternatives. Are you getting a lot of questions from, you know, we'll call them a little, you know, clients that are eyeballing some of these, you know, high junk things that are yielding 9 or 12%. It looks juicy. It looks juicy. And listen, I think there's been so much shock in the markets this year. Remember, having one of the worst years ever, if not the worst year ever in fixed income, um, I think a lot of investors are still a little shocked. So yeah, you, you do get those phone calls. Should I buy things that are juicier, riskier, get into double digits? And the answer is eventually. Um, there are certainly some things that you that you can buy out there that that are attractive. Um, but I think, the, like, listen, agency mortgage securities, which have the government guarantee, 65 to 7%, right? So it's really hard to convince me that you need to extend out the risk curve when risk, low risk stuff is as cheap as it is. Yeah, and it, would you would you dive into the high high yield sort of you know high, highest quality junk market right now? Would you yes, do it? Yes, and, and it's funny. People have. That's the one place in high yield where people have continued to jump in. So it's actually probably done too well versus investment grade. They may be splitting hairs. So yes, I think that stuff has great yield. I think it's attractive. I think in a slowdown, if treasuries rally, you'll get your income, maybe not a lot more. Um, so again, it wouldn't be my first choice. But I think if you add a lot of high-grade fixed income and then sprinkle in some things with more yield, you actually have a very attractive portfolio that could compete with some of equity markets out there. Yeah, and on treasuries, and I don't want to, this may be a little bit wonky or what I don't want to put you on the spot. I have a buddy of mine who's far more successful than I am, and he told me that he bought all these two-year treasuries direct from the government, and yeah, he's getting four, four and a half percent, and it's state income tax-free. 
He was yeah, nearly listen. like dancing around the room. <laughs> well, I think if you are if you're real tax free, the the muni bond, the muni bond market has a ton of opportunities in that five to seven percent tax adjusted range. But absolutely, Treasuries to me, listen, we were we were four and a half percent ten year notes a few weeks ago. So now we're three eighty. I think we're going to three and a quarter. Um, two year notes will give you good income. So it depends how safe you want to be. Uh, but I do think bonds, for the first time in a long time, give you both income and a chance for appreciation. Uh, that is uh, that that will be around for a little while, but probably not too long. Brian Weinstein, good look there at fixed income. Really a topsy-turvy year in so many ways, Brian. Um, and finally, your team is getting some love. So that's, that's good news. <laughs> it's good. It's Bo- good to be discussed. That's, that's for it. sure. It's we're it. back in Boring the Boring is the new sexy, baby. Brian, thank you. <laughs> we're, we're back. Thank you. You're, yeah, we're back, baby. All right. On today on Closing Bell, do not miss noted investor Mario Gabelli of Gamco Investors. We'll get his take on Disney, breaking up Live Nation, and much, much more. The always entertaining Mario Gabelli. All right, still ahead. The shippers geared up, of course, for a big holiday season. But could inflation actually impact your shipments? Frank Collin has that story from the UPS Smart Hub in Atlanta. Frank? Right there, Brian. We're in UPS's second biggest facility in the U.S. where they they process about 100,000 packages just like these per hour. We're going to look at the holiday peak, what it could mean for both UPS and FedEx, and some of the new companies trying to get in the space. That's coming up next on The Exchange. Welcome back. The National Retail Federation predicting double-digit e-commerce sales growth again this holiday. It's kind of like every year now, right? But the shippers may be seeing a bit of a different picture. Frank Collin is down at the UPS Smart Hub in Atlanta with why some fear it might be a bit of a a ho-hum or a humbug holiday. Frank. You know, that remains to be seen, Brian. 90 million packages per day. That's the latest forecast from data firm ShipMatrix for holiday peak e-commerce. That will be flat year over year. As you mentioned, we're here at the UPS Smart Hub where they're using a combination of automation and human workers to get packages out. They say they're ready for any surge that may come up. So the question is, where is that surge going to come from? As I mentioned, the forecast is flat. And over the last couple of years during the pandemic, UPS and FedEx, they've really counted on surcharges for big retail customers shipping above pre-holiday volumes to boost their bottom lines. Another big question for this holiday peak is on-time delivery. Both UPS and FedEx, they're sweating their assets, reducing capacity to cut costs. Um, anytime that you have a slowdown in on-time delivery, that directly hits margin. For the last six weeks, UPS at 97%, anything over 95%, that's good. The company says it's still on pace to hire 100,000 holiday workers, and they say in some markets they have to pay them more. Another question about margin. But the big story for this holiday peak may be overcapacity. According to Ship Matrix, there's 20% more capacity available than is actually needed this holiday season with the U.S. Postal Service ramping up its capacity. That's allowing some new e-commerce entrants to enter the space, including Quiet Logistics, that's a subsidiary of American Eagle, and also Pitney Bowes. So I spoke to UPS and FedEx. They said they're not as worried about those new entrants because they're focused on quality, not quantity, but certainly something to watch for the holiday peak. Brian, back over to you. All right, Frank, I know it's loud, but no one's ever been accused of me of having trouble hearing from me. So hopefully you can hear me with two of these questions. Here's a kind of an interesting one. If I ship something to you, I'm in New Jersey and I ship something to Philly, right? You're visiting your family and I want to send you a box. Does it go through Atlanta or Louisville? Is that how everything routes? No, absolutely not, Brian. They certainly have sorting stations in regional areas. Not every single thing goes to those two main hubs, which you're referring to as the main hub for UPS 
in Louisville and the, and the main hub for uh, FedEx. That's not quite how it works, um, but certainly when you're talking about air express delivery packages, many of them will go through those main hubs. Another point that I think you're alluding to is, are we going to see the same delays this holiday season? That's, That's not expected. It's really expected to be a much smoother holiday shipping season with not as much capacity needed by big retail customers that have top priority over a person like me and you, and just more capacity on these networks. The question is potentially on-time delivery with these companies cutting back on workers in capacity, and then also their margins when it comes to earnings. This quarter is their biggest quarter when it comes to volume. The question is, will it be its most profitable, at least since the pandemic started, with these different changes of people going to stores to shop more? You know, we kind of got to look behind you. It's a, you're in focus, as you should be, my man, but behind you, it's not, how big is this facility? I'm kind of picturing this thing as like a mile long. Seriously, how big is it? Well, here, I'm going to step aside so you can get a good look at it, some of the work that's going on. This is a very big facility. I'd say it's about the size of about six or seven football fields. But more importantly, as I mentioned at the top, um, they can process about 1,000 packages an hour. And if you took all the packages they can process here throughout the course of a day, it will be as tall as Mount Everest. So the size of the facility may not be as important as its capabilities. This is also its most automated hub in the United States. It takes about a third of the workers that it would to equip a similar facility somewhere else if it didn't have the same automation. That red light you see here behind yeah. me, that's a big part of the automation. It's scanning packages. You're seeing there are some manual duties. Not that guy just pushed the package. But certainly a lot of automation, automated vehicles, automated sorting, and a lot of other capabilities. I have an idea I want you to drop to the CEO for me, Frank, because it kind of looks fun. They should open a ride nearby where you basically you just go on that. You sit in a box, and they, that would be – that's a business – I don't know what the CEO would think. It probably not, but it, it looks like fun. It's like the log flume ride. I want to ride it. Frank Holland, thank you, my man. Good stuff. All right, quick check here on the markets and a couple of things because we actually have a little time. It's a miracle, right? All right, the markets are up right now, 319 on the Dow. We're seeing moves across the board. Oil stocks doing really well today. In fact, the OIH, it's an ETF that we talk a lot on, on fast money anyway. The OIH is up just about 3% as well to 309. It was under, what, 175 about a year ago. And this is interesting. Best Buy is the best performing stock in the S&P 500 today. Dollar Tree, the worst. Go figure. All ahead of Black Friday on Friday. That does it for us in the exchange. Power Lunch starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.